Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Great to be back with you. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. In just a moment, I will be joined by Dr. Ingrid Scott. She is an OBGYN. She's on the front line of working with women who are pregnant, but also the front line of the pro-life movement, citing the records straight with sound medical data and research that helps to clarify debates over things such as maternal mortality rate miscarriage and other issues that people tend to use as their argument to defend having so-called safe and legal abortion in the United States. But as we know time and time again, abortion is not legal, is not safe, even though it may be legal. And that's what's frightening is that over the last 50 years, abortion has been at all costs, everything about access. And even now with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, as we see individual states battling over abortion, so-called rights, we find that at the end of the day, it doesn't leave a woman with a right to her life, a right to health care, good, basic health care, especially for the developed world, such as the United States. So joining me in just a moment will be Dr. Ingrid Skopp, also diving into some of the science today of the tilma. If you don't know what the tilma is, is happy feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe. The tilma is the image of Our Lady that was imprinted on the cloak of Juan Diego, St. Juan Diego, when he was asked to provide proof of the apparitions of Our Lady. There are incredible scientific elements that can't be explained by science. They defy science, especially for a garment that's over 500 years old. So it's one of those neat proofs for our faith proofs for miracles. So I hope you'll stay with me to dive into that. You can catch it later on the podcast at relevantradio.com forward slash trending or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up also, we'll dive into the topic of peace as we're in the second week of Advent. And that candle, that second candle on your Advent wreath is meant to represent that fruit of the Holy Spirit of peace. So more to come on the show today. It's interesting as I've been following the maternal mortality rates over the years. Historically, over the last 50 years, countries with little to no access to abortion have actually held the lowest mortality rates. Looking at research such as prior to abortion being legalized in Ireland, that included Ireland, Poland, Malta, El Salvador, and Chile. Now we see places such as the U.S., Russia, Vietnam, being the leading places that have legalized abortion, access to abortion, but also some of the highest mortality rates. It's an interesting topic when you dive into it because it actually does relate to abortion. If you didn't know this, in 
the U.S., pregnancy-related deaths occur at a significantly higher rate than other developed nations that have similar medical standards of care, which I like to think that here in the United States, we have pretty advanced technology and advanced medicine. But the U.S. is one of the most permissive nations in the world regarding abortion. In fact, the United States is one of six countries that allows for late-term abortions. North Korea, China, Vietnam, and Canada, as well as South Korea, are some of those other countries that have quite a bit of access to abortion that is unthinkable in most all other places in the world. Joining me today is Dr. Ingrid Skop. She is a pro-life OBGYN. She's a vice president and director of medical affairs at Charlotte Lozier Institute. And she published earlier this year at the National Library of Medicine, a fantastic piece of research that dives into the statistics behind everything with regard to maternal mortality rates that we know internationally. Joining me now to discuss this is Dr. Ingrid Skop. Dr. Ingrid Skop has delivered more than 5,000 babies, and she is personally on the front line caring for women who have attempted or been experienced abortions and have had to face the physical and emotional harm where complications have gone awry and she helps to pick up the pieces when other physicians aren't willing to work with and help protect and care for these women. So without further ado, Dr. Scott, thank you for the work you're doing and for being with us today. Thank you, Timory. I'm so glad to be back with you tonight. When I'm looking at some of this research on the maternal mortality rate, do we know the maternal mortality rate for women when they carry to term versus have an abortion? Is this all in one big pile of statistics? How should we look at this? It's important to recognize that the uh, mortality data in the United States is very flawed and very incomplete, particularly when it's related to abortion. Um, Most abortions in our country are paid for privately. Many women do not want to report their abortions. There is not a way to know with any accuracy every abortion that occurs and to be able to link it to a subsequent death of a woman. Um, So abortion advocates um, utilize this data deficiency to Uh, published studies. Uh, One very famous study that is constantly referenced said that abortion um, was 14 times more dangerous or was 14 times safer than childbirth, but it was based on incredibly flawed data. When we look at European countries where we can know the abortions that are performed because they pay for abortions um, with their single-payer health care term and that a woman is much more likely to die within the year following her abortion than she is if she had carried her child to term. Two to four times as likely from any reason, six to seven times as likely to die from suicide. This should concern us all. When people think about maternal mortality, they tend to think of an event that occurred at the time of the end of the pregnancy, a hemorrhage or infection, uh, perhaps at, at the time of labor. But the reality is maternal mortality goes all the way to a year after the end of the pregnancy. Increasingly in our country, we're discovering that those are mental health related deaths. And there is absolutely no way to um, link, for example, a woman's suicide Mm -hmm. to an abortion that she may have had that was coerced six months earlier. Mm -hmm. But we know based on the European data that is happening 
and it should concern us all. That's startling, Dr. Scott, because most women don't want to share that they have had an abortion. It's something that they keep a secret, don't share for many, many years, even look back on. And so to hear this, I mean, how would we even record closed medical records that someone had an abortion in the months, weeks prior, if no one knew and knew to look back potentially and see a connection there? Yeah, absolutely. Unless unless someone else knows. Um, and even... Um, the CDC, when they look at maternal mortality, they are looking at a death certificate. So they're looking to see, does the death certificate indicate that there was a pregnancy? And as you may imagine, because of the data deficiencies about abortion, it's often not remarked on the death certificate that there had been an abortion. Again, looking at that European data, what we discovered even there is that 94% of abortion-related deaths were not documented on the death certificate. And that's in a country that has much better quality data. So again, we know um, that the CDC, when they report two or three abortion-related deaths in a year, um, they're not even trying to get accurate data. And we know that there's far more deaths associated with abortion. So two big things that stood out in what you said, among many, was that more than half of the maternal mortality rate of deaths occur between one week and one year after the pregnancy has ended. And then a majority of those are mental health related. That's staggering because we talk a lot about the medical impact of abortion, including that it can lead to a greater increased risk of breast cancer, that it can lead to many various types of um, autoimmune disorders, depending on the type of abortion. We could dive into many of those issues. But when you're talking about the mental health crisis, this is something that is very prevalent and common in our culture as a buzzword, a topic for a really trying to provide care to people. Yet for some reason, this conversation surrounding mental health and women is not occurring when it comes to abortion. Yeah, absolutely. And Abortion advocates sometimes will say if a woman does have a mental health complication after an abortion, that it was not the abortion that caused it, that perhaps her difficult um, life situation or social situation. But at Lozier, we did a study where we actually gained access to the 17 states that allow Medicaid to pay for elective abortions. So we were able to determine what happened when a woman carried her first um, pregnancy to term versus when she aborted it. And we discovered that the women um, who aborted had twice um, the rate of um, mental health outpatient visits following the abortion compared to the women who gave birth. They had almost three times the rate of being hospitalized for a serious mental health problem wow. with seven times the hospital days of stay. So again, when we look at records linkage rather than just anecdotal or incomplete data, we discover that abortion is linked to increased mental health complications. And um, high quality meta-analyses have documented increased anxiety, depression, substance and alcohol abuse, and mm -hmm. self-harm. And of course, these can all lead to deaths of despair, not just suicides, but accidents from high risk taking behavior, overdoses, um, and accidental deaths from substance abuse. It breaks my heart because there are women all over this country who are 
plagued by the abortion, the so-called choice that they made. I was even just thinking, I remember walking into TJ Maxx a couple months ago with, I had my two daughters in the stroller and this young woman, she looked younger than me in her early 20s and she saw my daughters and she averted her gaze so quickly and was staring so hard at the ground, she looked as if she wanted us to disappear, as if she had never seen us, and that she could just curl up in a hole and run away and hide inside that store. And my heart was breaking. I share that because there's so many women who, and I believe in her case, she likely had an abortion. It is so common in our country. And yet here's this young woman with her whole life before her, this beautiful, beautiful young woman. And yet this is what we're offering with so-called safe, legal, and rare abortion, which the abortion advocacy does not include rare anymore. They just want it legal and they leave out the safe part as well. Yet you're diving down into the medical and mental side of it. Now, you mentioned the suicide rate is six times more likely uh, for a woman who has had an abortion over carrying the baby to term. How do you see this in the medical profession? If you are in the medical office with women, do you see like warning signs where you're going, okay, I need to help in finding resources and help for this woman? Or is this just an area that's kind of like uh, no one's addressing as much as they should apart from, you know, some people who maybe is pro-life and has the opportunity to have this conversation? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Unfortunately, most of the major medical organizations are ideologically pro-choice. I believe in many cases that is for reasons of eugenics or population control, or the doctors may just have not thought it through very well and and feel that for some reason this is really something that women need. Um, But those of us who, who are aware of the problem, who do have the ability to talk to women in the wake of an abortion, We've discovered so many times, even 20 years after an abortion, if you bring it up, the woman may have tears in her eyes. So many women have told me that they obtained their abortion under coercion. Um, Young women who said, you know, I wanted my baby, but when I started to show, my mother forced me to have an abortion or the boyfriend forced her to have an abortion. So we know that these late abortions Um, Many times those are under coercion because nine months is a long time for a woman who wants her baby to say no to a coercive person in her life. And so that's one of the tragedies about the United States and abortion is that in at least 50 states, there are no upper limits. I mean, I'm sorry, I said 50, but in about 25 states, there are no upper limits on when a woman can have an abortion. Um, which people think that probably doesn't happen, but it does. There are late-term abortion providers um, in many parts of our country who will perform an abortion for any reason at any time in pregnancy. It's interesting because uh, research came out earlier this year specifically addressing this, that women find that they were often coerced into the abortion, pressured, that it wasn't what they wanted, and that it also didn't go along with their moral or spiritual religious beliefs. And that's significant. That says that that whole pro-choice narrative does not 
fly. And this is what I've seen in front of the abortion clinic, sidewalk counseling. I'm sure this is what you've seen uh, helping counsel women after the fact when women have come to you with having experienced botched abortions. Dr. Scott, what was some of the most surprising information that you uncovered? You're looking at all this international data on maternal mortality rates connected to abortion. A lot of this is underrepresented, under-researched, and rarely discussed. What were the probably surprising findings or even maybe some of the side elements that weren't a key part of the maternal side of it? Well, one thing that I found very interesting when um, abortion advocates publish on abortion internationally is that they make the assumption that if it is obtained legally, that it is totally safe. And they then make the assumption that if it is happens to be illegal in that particular country, that it is extraordinarily unsafe. And of course, there are nuances, but many of the abortions that are being performed in countries where it is illegal are being performed by providers who know what they're doing in essentially the same technique as they're being provided legally. So the only difference is the legal status. And of course, we've talked about chemical abortions before. In our country, now that there are about 25 states that are trying to protect unborn life, these pills are being used to provide illegal abortions. And they do that internationally as well. So this this narrative, legal equals safe, illegal equals dangerous, is not true. Mm. Um, But we see that they try to inflate the numbers where they're done illegally. These are often WHO just estimates. They may ask 25 people across 13 different states, how many abortions do you think happen here and how many women die? And so they just take this randomly generated estimates, usually from other pro-abortion researchers, and then plug in numbers and come up with these astronomical numbers. But, um, you know, like you say, it used to be said in this country, safe, legal and rare. And apparently now that it is not legal in some places, safety doesn't matter. Rarity doesn't matter. And they're more than happy to provide these pills illegally to women. This is some of the most startling elements of the abortion movement right now is chemical abortion. It's an anomaly to me. How is it that we have essentially a drug trade occurring internationally where women of basically any age in this country have access to chemical abortion pills? And even places such as the University of San Francisco, they in California have research and studies calling it the early period pill, where they're giving women pills that are kind of a combination between chemical abortion abortion that should not be taken as late as 16 weeks, yet we're searing over and over again of women who are taking it that late. And it's a combination between that and plan B. And it's startling to see that they're having so-called research um, programs where they're bringing in these young women who they say, you think you might be pregnant? Well, don't take a pregnancy test. Just take these sets of pills, the early um, period pill, and we'll take care of it for you. This is what they're incorporating already in countries that don't have legal abortion. And this is what they're trying to implement into various states that have strong restrictions against abortion to protect the lives, not just the babies, but as you're indicating, Dr. Scop, if you could speak to this a little bit more, and if you're just joining me, that's Dr. Ingrid Scop, a pro-life OBGYN. Uh, can you speak to that side of how I think that like women, women are not receiving that information properly to navigate this? Yeah, absolutely. So again, they're trying to conflate 
Um, you know, and, and they know there's a stigma attached to abortion. So they're trying to give these pills um, to create abortions. But the woman can think to herself, no, I just took a pill to bring on my period. Well, progesterone will bring on a period safely. And you don't need to put yourself at risk of the mifepristone and mesoprostol. Mifepristone is associated with hemorrhage. It is also associated, both of the drugs are actually associated with um, infection. And in fact, there is a black box warning produced by the FDA mm. on mifepristone warning providers that a woman can have a serious life-threatening sepsis without the standard indications of elevated white blood cell count, fever, or significant pain. And in fact, um, the there is in, there is information that perhaps there were as many as six deaths last year reported to the FDA of women after chemical abortion. And of course, you haven't heard them talking about that, have you? They're trying to keep that very quiet. But there have been a number of women that have died from overwhelming sepsis following chemical abortion pills. So these are dangerous drugs. If a woman needs to bring on her period because she's not pregnant and just hasn't had her period, there's much safer ways to do it. Now, you just shared something I had not heard yet, that there are six recorded and reported cases of deaths of women who took the chemical abortion pill reported to the FDA just last year. And these are ones just that are reported. And we here in the United States have no mandatory abortion statistic reporting, nor do we have any mandatory reporting of death related to abortion. This is why the research you've done is so, uh, I don't like to use this word, but it is cutting edge, even though it shouldn't be on the abortion front. It, I think, really gives power to these individual states who are trying to put restrictions on abortion. Can you speak to how much more dangerous late-term abortion is uh, for a, a woman's mortality uh, in these cases as well, as well, where states such as California and others are keeping late-term abortion? Yeah, absolutely. So it is interesting that both California and Maryland refuse to report any abortion statistics to the CDC. They just don't. They just absolutely don't. But both of those states have very late term abortionists. And of course, California has a tremendous number of abortions. And again, we go back to the problem of the CDC is not just about collecting data about abortion. If they were, they would mandate it. We would say, let's let's look at all pregnancy outcomes and then let's try to link them to subsequent complications so that we can really make an accurate comparison, which is more dangerous. Um, there's efforts underway, really, sadly, to make women frightened of pregnancy. I think this whole um, narrative about maternal mortality being so high, um, is, is driving women, I've seen it, it's, it's making them believe that if they go through with a pregnancy, that they're very likely to die. Of course, the, the deaths are very, very few. Um, a woman is much more likely to die in a car accident in a given year than she is to die from a complication of pregnancy. But all of that nuanced is missed in the conversation. Um, Late-term abortions, like you mentioned, the CDC does document with their limited data that early in the second trimester, a woman is 15 times as likely to die from an abortion. In the middle part of the second trimester, 30 times as likely to die. And after viability, which is around 22 weeks when the baby 
could survive the separation from his mother, she is 76 times as likely to die from an abortion compared to a first trimester abortion. But of course, these women are in, and like we talked about earlier, many of these are not wanted abortions. These are women who want their baby. Someone is pressuring them into that dangerous abortion. Just to clarify, because what you just said was staggering, and I have not heard this said before other than in your work, abortion after 22 weeks is 70 times more likely to kill the woman. That is shocking. And I wish people heard this because I think the hardest argument for people to wrap their heads around is, well, what about the life of the mother? And that's the argument you hear about over and over again, but no one's arguing about the life of the mother when we have legal late-term abortion plaguing this nation. Yeah, absolutely. And the life of the mother is a dishonest argument too, because every state that has protection for unborn life has an exception if an abortion is needed to save the mother's life. As an obstetrician of 30 years, I can tell you it's probably almost never needed. I have never needed to perform a direct abortion, although there have been times women have had serious complications and I've needed to separate her from her baby. But I can usually do that by induction. And most of the time, the baby lives. So this idea that in order to separate a mother and her baby, you must intentionally kill the baby is obviously um, untrue. And and how harmful, because these women want their children. It's it's devastating Mm -hmm. when a woman needs to be separated from her baby because of a pregnancy complication. Mm -hmm. But again, this is part of the fear mongering to make people fear the pro-life laws This is a common narrative that doctors can't provide quality care. And I'll tell you, as a pro-life obstetrician, that is absolutely untrue. And the reality is that approximately 90% of obstetricians do not perform elective abortions. If it was really essential reproductive health care, of course, we would all do it because we're women's health care practitioners. But we know it's not necessary. It's a false dilemma and it's putting a moral dilemma that is not necessary on women who are sick and for medical reasons need to, as you say, separate from that baby in early delivery that where sometimes the child can survive based on viability or sometimes the child may die naturally. But that's totally different from the direct killing of a child. And you just spoke, I think, so eloquently to that being an OBGYN for over 30 years, having delivered babies, you've never had a case where you need to kill a baby to save the life of the mother, perhaps separate that baby earlier than can survive or even survive outside the womb. Dr. Scott, that's Dr. Ingrid Scott here on Trending. Thank you for joining me. I'm posting a link to this great study that is on the National Library of Medicine available for you to read along with some of her other research and episodes where she sets the record straight regarding medicine and abortion for any of those pro-abortion arguments you may be working to engage. So check out the resources in the episode notes for today, relevantradio.com forward slash trending.
toll-free line is 888-914-9149, and it's sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters Life Insurance. If you have a question, we're talking about Our Lady of Guadalupe, the miraculous and, and unexplainable by science Tilma in just a moment, but also it's that second week of Advent, and if you didn't know, those candles that you see up on the altar at Mass, they suddenly seem appeared with little to no commentary on them, but each of the candles is uh, representing a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And the next one this week is peace that we mark. Now, I love the Advent wreath. I grew up with it. We have it in our home now. My almost three-year-old is practicing blowing out candles, and it's a debate over who gets to blow out the candle next time if we forget that she was supposed to blow it out. Uh, So we're learning fire safety, but we're talking a lot about those themes of the light of Christ coming into our homes in the second week of Advent. And we, as we're naming these different candles, we're learning some of those 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit. And today, that fruit theme throughout the week is peace. Now, I think that this is an incredible fruit of the Holy Spirit. And it's so lost on this idea of world peace. It's lost on this idea of hippie peace and love type of mindset. If we really drill down on what peace is, it really does speak to the antithesis of the mental health crisis and the dissatisfaction that's occurring interiorly and the discontinuity in our culture because true authentic peace coming from the Holy Spirit is grounded only in God, in a sense of utter and complete belonging to God, belonging to self, and therefore belonging within a family and society that doesn't understand where they belong. It's bringing order into chaos, truth into darkness, brokenness and severing that is abolished by this unwavering confidence in God and God's confidence in having created you specifically. That even in the midst of the brokenness of the family of origin you may have, even in the face of the brokenness of the messiness of life you might be in and the craziness of society, the chaos within the church, within your community, all these things that can seem as if they're so unsettling, right there in the heart of it, you stand as a creature created in God's image and likeness. And infused by the Holy Spirit, by our very baptism. This is why baptism is so important. We receive sanctifying grace. This is why the sacraments are so important. Because we receive the very grace and life of God within us. Think about it. The body of Christ being received and consumed into our bodies. And so this fruit of the Holy Spirit, peace. If I were to define it in the simplest of terms is a sense of belonging. Oh, it's funny because my three-year-old keeps asking, well, what does this virtue represent? Or what does this candle represent? What does that candle represent? And it's so funny because she's getting the idea of hope. And as we're in the second week, she keeps thinking pieces as in like a piece of candy, a piece of cake. Like she keeps associating the other type of piece in her head as she's expanding her vocabulary still. But although she's flawed in her understanding of peace, I really do think our culture is flawed in understanding what peace is because peace comes from God. That sense of belonging and self-possession that only comes from God. When we have the Holy Spirit within us, we're able to sit at peace in and with ourselves. Sit at peace 
with others, even when they don't feel quite so peaceful. Father Robert Spitzer in his Five Pillars of the Spiritual Life, it's a great free online curriculum that you can find at CredibleCatholic.com. He has quite a bit to say about peace, and he refers to peace as a deep sense of home. I love that definition, peace as a deep sense of home. He says the peace coming from the Holy Spirit is more than the mere relief from suffering, a sense of well-being, or a sense of equanimity. It is rooted in a deep sense of home, home amid the cosmos, which we have with faith and we know is being at home with God. It's opposite in alienation, a sense of not being at home and or being out of kilter with the totality. I love that last statement that the opposite of having a deep sense of home, a deep sense of belonging is that sense of being out of kilter, but not just out of kilter with this person or that situation, out of kilter with the totality. I would say the totality of the universe, the totality of the world, the totality of family life, the totality of the very meaning and purpose of my life. If we fail to understand that the purpose of our life is eternal beatitude with God, well then, obviously, obviously we are going to be unsettled and feel out of kilter. The world is out of kilter today because the world has forgotten God. I just think over and over again of the early church. I think of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And in that very first chapter, chapter one, where he talks about how we've turned our backs on God and essentially the creatures, you and I, become unintelligible. We can no longer know ourselves or know each other because God himself has become outside of our purview. He's outside purview, not because of God, but because of us, because we've turned our backs on God. The creatures become unintelligible because we no longer know the creator. How can we know ourselves if we do not know the eyes of the beholder? If we do not know the life and the love and the mercy and the intention of the beholder? This is why we see this out of kilter ideology of gender ideology. It's total disorder. It's the antithesis of peace. If peace is a sense of belonging, well, that's exactly the opposite of what gender ideology is. And so as we're in this second week of Advent, pondering the reality and the gift of the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ, we're called to enter into the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the very life and breath of the church, which means the life and breath of the Holy Spirit himself. I love the imagery if we think about it for a moment that it used to be there was a tradition for quite some time that at confirmation, at the coming of the Holy Spirit, at the completion of those graces of the Holy Spirit, that it was actually that the priest used to slap the person on the face. The bishop would slap the person on the face, receive the Holy Spirit. That was a tradition for some time. Now we don't do that. I think it would be very, <laughs> that would be bad for optics today. But it's this receiving the Holy Spirit. There's that breath. There's that life that comes into you. Just as it used to be when a child was born, it used to be that the baby was held upside down by its feet and the baby was swat on the bottom to receive the breath of life. And so when you think about it, there's almost this necessity in our culture today that we have the peace and truth of Christ slapped into us to bring the light of the world, ushering it in to the world around us. And 
this is what's necessary for things to change. This is why people, secular and Christian alike, surrounding the Christmas holiday season. Remember, holiday means holy day. So I always find myself not being so um, offended when people say happy holidays if they're trying to be politically correct because I laugh and think, do you know what a holy day is? Uh, Anyway, that's my little funny antic rather than being annoyed by the anti-Christian sentiments that can occur. But when I really think of this season, as I mentioned a moment ago, People of no religious background, those who have fallen away and those of great Christian faith, I think sometimes live and often live their best life at this time of year. The greatest sense of camaraderie and cultivated community, joy that even if it's in a symbol of everything from a peppermint latte to the Christmas tree lights that we follow around to the gift giving and receiving and the parties that Even in the midst of all of that, even in the midst of the imperfection of it and the materialism or the gluttony, that even in the midst of all of that, all of that is a forward motion to the light of Christ, even when people don't realize it. And so this is where we have a responsibility as people of faith to ask that question, do I have the peace of the Holy Spirit within me? Am I running from God? Am I failing to see the truth in the life of Christ within me? Or do I have that light of Christ? Do I have that sense of peace, that grace-filled life of the Holy Spirit? When we have the Holy Spirit within us, we're able to rest in peace in ourselves, with others, in our communities, in the world around us, having hope which was last week's theme of Advent. There's this idea when it comes to peace of being at home in the totality of the world. Father Robert Spitzer says the signature of the Holy Spirit is a sense of having a place in the totality of fitting in, of being bathed in joy or light. That is a being in unity with the creator and principle of all being. That's bringing light into our lives, light into other people's lives. When we have that sense of belonging to self, a sense of home, a sense of comfort, which ironically, this tends to be a time of year where we cultivate our homes in such a wonderful way because we're cultivating Christ inside them, even if we don't know the reason for the season. And it's just lights in a tree that we throw up. We're called to find peace when we don't feel like we belong. To find a sense of comfort within ourselves. And one of the greatest ways of doing that is forming a life of prayer. To become contemplatives. Part of my formation in my faith over the years, especially spending time with the religious community of St. John, who has this great charism and draw, having St. John the Beloved Apostle as their father, their leader, that when we see the example of that life of contemplative prayer lived out, of being able to pray in all moments of the day, not that we're praying Hail Marys constantly, but we're in perpetual conversation with our Lord, in the perspective of God's providential love and care, in the providential timing of his allowing suffering so that we might be better united to him. This is a season for us to work in partnership with the Holy Spirit, to achieve that sense of peace, that sense of belonging, and that profound sense of home. 
You're listening to Trending with Tim Ray here on Relevant Radio. I'll be right back diving into the science that can't be explained in the tilma of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Stay tuned because this is incredible. If you ever have a hard time with your faith and want a scientific proof, well, here's a great proof for an incredible miracle of Our Lady that occurred 500 years ago. So that I wanted to touch on the father of a young woman who had a chemical abortion ended up attempting uh, to have a suicide. And sorry, just to clarify, the father called in and let's pray for him, pray for his daughter. The daughter had a chemical abortion and then had a suicide attempt. She's now in an institution and he was looking for some thoughts and advice. And unfortunately, we weren't able to take him on air and he dropped. But I do just want to speak into the situation. Number one, asking for your prayers for this young woman and her family because abortion is killing women, literally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And biggest thing that is so important when it comes to abortion, if you know someone who has had an abortion, we need to get hope and healing for them. So there is a resource I hope to put in your back pocket for any time you might know. Save it as a contact in your phone. It's supportafterabortion.com. That's supportafterabortion.com. You can literally save someone's life who is struggling after had having had an abortion. Because what we know is that when women have access to hope, to healing, and the mercy of Jesus Christ, it is transformative. So many women have been coerced or pressured into abortion or thought that they had no other way out, no other option. But we know Jesus Christ is the option, is the way, is the light. And so support after abortion is secular, but can also point to spiritual healing as well. There's Rachel Vineyard retreats that are great resources because women who have been through abortion know the pain. They know the mental health crisis. And so I hope that this young woman can find healing with people who have been there and can help with sound counseling, psychological counseling, because to participate in taking your own child's life is so damaging for a woman. So please look into that resource, supportafterabortion.com. I post on social media and hey, I'll ask you to do so too. Repost it online. It can literally save a life and it helps save future babies and women from future abortions. It's so important we have that information that's shareable. And that is it. So I'm posting up there if you can throw it out as well on your social media or maybe when the opportunity arises, if you know someone who has had an abortion, pray for the Holy Spirit to open up that door of conversation, if it be our Lord's most holy will, to provide that information for healing after abortion. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. I over the last few years, have really become fascinated by Our Lady of Guadalupe's apparition and some of the science behind the apparition. I have never been someone who has had specifically a devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe until the last couple of years. My 
daughters were actually due right around Our Lady of Guadalupe's feast day because I have a baby due the 20th or sorry that was born the 20th and the 28th of December and so I was always rooting for those Marian feast days. I have two in December and both of them missed the many Marian feast days that we have here in this great month of December. Literally within less than the last week we had three Marian feast days and so here's what's fascinating to you. If you know a little about our a little bit about Our Lady of Guadalupe, I want to touch on just a key element that is really intriguing from a scientific perspective. So Our Lady of Guadalupe appeared to now known as St. Juan Diego, a native Aztec in 1531. And as we look at what happened, one of the miracles was uh, Juan Diego was being asked, okay, prove this miracle. People weren't believing him. And so he goes to Our Lady asking for proof. And basically in his tilma, in his garment, clothing that he's wearing, when he goes back to share about Our Lady, he reveals basically not just these flowers that she tells him to give to the bishop, but also on his cloak is the image of Our Lady himself and flowers that were not accessible or findable at that time of year. And so if you look at this garment that we have today, which is absolutely fascinating. There are five key parts that our attention can be drawn to that really defy science, confuse and baffle science. And scientists basically say it's impossible. So first of all, the tilma hasn't decayed. Dr. Philip Callahan is a biophysicist at the University of Florida, and he's remarked, and he's done a ton of research, infrared research on the tilma itself, that in the 500 years that the image has had no cracks, no decay, or even flaking. There is some added paint and gold leafing that was put at one point on the tilma itself, and those parts indeed have decayed and deteriorated, but all of the original image is unexplainably there. Not to mention the fact that it does not seem to have ever been painted. Normally in a painting, you have brush strokes, a sketch underneath, or even corrections. There's no brush stroke, no sketch underneath, and zero corrections. Dr. Philip Cerna Callahan, who was a biophysicist I just mentioned, he actually ended up, he was a NASA consultant as well, by the way, and he photographed the cloth of the tilma under infrared light and published his findings over 40 years ago in a paper called the tilma under infrared radiation. And part of what he points to is how even when we look at the image, added parts that were painted on later, those decayed. But the original image holds true and strong and undamaged. And it's fascinating to see this. Now, other elements of that is even if you look at the fact that for over 115 years, the the cloth, the tilma itself, was displayed completely unprotected, open to physically being touched by people, the incense there in the church, light, air, and dust. Normally, you would see a piece of clothing as such as this, unprotected, would start to decay. But instead, scientists cannot explain its durability and longevity. That's incredible. And just look at clothes you have in your own closet. If you've had them long enough, it starts to lose its integrity, starts to lose its coloring. But here, this painting is that isn't even painted on. You can't explain it. There are no brush strokes. There's no sketch underneath. There's your corrections. It's almost 
impossible. And that's what scientists show. It literally is impossible. The material and integrity of the entire fabric has not been lost in over 500 years. Now, it's interesting because if you look at it, there were moments where they tried to like touch it up. But within 15 years, any of those touch ups or sorry, they weren't even touch ups like added on. I know they tried to add on like a part where the moon is under the feet of Our Lady. When that was added on within 15 years, it starts to decay. And so it's fascinating to look at this. But here's another really, really neat element of the research. So an engineer by the name of Jose Tonsman, he took the image on the tilma and amplified it by 2,500 times. Now, what happened when the image was amplified is that in the eyes of Our Lady that appears on the tilma, that image of Our Lady of Guadalupe that we have, you can actually see the bishop and some of the other witnesses of the miracle. And Juan Diego reveals these roses and everything that was in the, the tilma, the image of the tilma. So the image in Mary's eyes, here's what's fascinating, that has been super amplified to 2,500 times the size. And we see this image that's there in Our Lady's eyes. That cannot be replicated. It's impossible. With technological advancements today, yet alone those that occurred nearly 500 years ago. And even to look at the angle in which it imitates the way the eye would actually, the cornea of the eye would actually even look and gaze out is perfectly aligned with how the eye functions. And yet all of this miraculously and unexplainably is there on the tilma of Juan Diego from Our Lady of Guadalupe. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Wednesday, I'll be joined by a licensed marriage and family therapist talking about sprucing up your family life. What's getting in the way of good conversations, good relationships? What are those challenging parenting or marital moments you have? Give us a call during the show. Also, do you know what a dink is? I learned the term just yesterday and I want to share it with you because it has a trend that is something to consider. So join me daily, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.